The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. Did you know that in Canada, we have a Minister of the Environment and Climate Change? We do, and her name is Catherine McKenna. She's the Member of Parliament for Ottawa Centre, and I had the wonderful opportunity to go into the House of Commons and actually meet her in her office for a short little interview, Uh, but she had a run for a vote. Her office is definitely the busiest office I've ever seen, and so luckily she got to call into the studio a little bit later so we could finish the interview. She's a very busy woman. Uh, She's very incredible, and she's taken some time out to speak with us. So I've put this episode together. It's a combination of two interviews that we've had, and I want to tell you all about what Canada's doing on a federal level, uh, who our Minister of the Environment and Climate Change is, and how that position came to be. Here's the Minister in her office talking about her position as Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Uh, Well, so this is a new role. Uh, Climate change resides a title, so that was sending a strong signal that climate change is a top priority for us. But uh, in my role now, and there's been different roles for ministers, um, I'm responsible for the environment portfolio, which is extremely broad. Um, It's everything from air pollution to climate to species at risk um, to chemicals. Then I have the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency, which is reviewing major projects, and uh, I also have parks. So it's a pretty broad portfolio, and obviously I'm part of government, so uh, the economic piece is really important and always demonstrating that even, you know, no matter what it is, there's always an economic angle to, to the file. Absolutely. Yeah, we always say we don't want to take anyone's jobs away if we stop buying things. So how do we stop producing so much waste but not take away jobs? Well, it's interesting on the plastics, and I don't know, maybe we're going in the wrong order, but uh, plastics, when you look at the value, when we throw out uh, single-use plastics, we're losing huge value. So it just makes sense to be recapturing the value. I think it's like $120 million uh, a year. So that's a wasted uh, asset. That could be recycled. And could be recycled and used for something else. Um, so going back to your role, climate change was added to the title um, recently. Is that it was right? when I, I was the first Minister of Environment and Climate Change, but Prime Minister asked me to take that role. So oh. it was a big change, and I think internationally it was noticed. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think a lot of our international listeners will be really happy to hear about you today because I don't know if everyone knows that we have a Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. So it's super exciting for me that we have one. I'm very well, proud. I am very excited to be the first Minister of Environment and Climate Change. So how did you get chosen once you won your riding in Ottawa Centre? Uh, so the Prime Minister is the one who, who makes the, the decision and uh, I think he, he appreciated it. I worked really hard to win my riding. It was a hard riding, but also I had to go immediately off to international negotiations. So although uh, I cared about the environment, I wasn't an environmentalist. I hadn't done this, uh, you know, for you know, my job. Many people had been, have been involved in the environment. I worked on human rights and trade law and other things, but um, my negotiations background, I think, uh, certainly served me well as we went into the Paris Agreement negotiations. Nice, which was kind of my next question, because you were involved with the Paris Agreement. Yeah, it was amazing. I started the job. Uh, I had to start at the very beginning, um, because I didn't really know what a COP was, um, so I had to ask, what was a COP? So it's a conference of the parties. 
Um, then I was off to Paris for the negotiations, um, and I was very involved. There, people were very happy that Canada was back, um, and I was very involved in negotiating a specifically specific section on markets, and that was a very hard section to land. But we landed it, and that was our piece. You know, we were very supportive in an ambitious agreement, but we helped, you know, get an important part of the text. And we were obviously thrilled to see an ambitious Paris agreement. What was the section on markets? Markets. It's how you use markets to tackle climate change. So Ontario and Quebec are in a market with California. Um, so they, you can trade. Uh, you can trade with each other, which is just a smart way to get low cost emission reductions. So in, in terms of carbon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's just talk about the cap-and-trade system for a moment. The cap-and-trade system is a way of managing carbon by doing exactly what the minister says. A group gets together, sets a cap on emissions, and then buys and trades carbon. So if one business can't reach their targets and they realize they're going to produce more carbon than their capped amount, they can look to other businesses who are producing less carbon than their cap and buy that carbon that wasn't processed from the second business who didn't produce that much. That means when businesses get their carbon emissions down, they can sell unused carbon credits to other businesses to keep everyone together under the carbon cap. It may sound confusing, but this actually worked. Back in 1990 with the US Clean Air Act, but instead of reducing CO2 emissions, the effort was actually to reduce sulfur dioxide, which was a major contributor at the time to acid rain. The Harvard Environmental Economics Program put together some lessons learned and found that the cap-and-trade system worked. Basically, coal-burning power plants in the U.S. could reduce emissions by installing pollution controls, scale-back operations, or buy credits. Between 1990 and 2004, sulfur dioxide emissions from the power sector fell by 36%, despite power output increasing 25% and sulfur dioxide emissions decreased by 5.1 million tons. The cap-and-trade system can work for carbon. I won't get into this very far, but you can contrast this with the carbon tax or even combine it for double measure. The carbon tax provides certainty about the cost because the tax is a designated amount, but won't exactly tell us how much carbon will be reduced exactly. The increased cost will deter buyers and polluters, but it's difficult to predict by how much. In contrast, the cap-and-trade system will provide certainty on emissions being produced, but not the price. Carbon taxes are much simpler and require less admin to run because the cap-and-trade system is basically a trading market. While it's worrisome to increase fuel prices on Canadians, we've already seen the bleaching of coral reefs because they can't handle the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, and it's imperative we reduce carbon across the planet before the remaining coral die that support countless amounts of ocean life. But let's get back to the minister and focus on zero waste here. So what kind of environmental initiatives are you currently working on in terms of zero waste? Um, well, zero waste is, is really important and the circular economy. So there are many ways we've been tackling the issue. It's everything from microbeads. So we banned microbeads um, in cosmetic products. We all know them and they're, they're bad, but uh, also looking at how do we work with provinces and territories and business, municipalities and businesses um, because it really takes a much broader approach. You know, we want to make sure that we're reducing our single-use plastics, but also um, you know, we need to be supporting developing countries where most of the plastics, the, the 10 rivers where most of the plastics enter the oceans. 
Let me tell you about the 10 rivers. So the Yangtze alone pours up to an estimated 1.5 million metric tons of plastic into the Yellow Sea. So this information comes from Scientific American. Christian Smith pulled data on plastic concentrations from 57 rivers around the world. The top polluting rivers are the Indus River, the Yellow River, the High River, the Nile, and the Ganges, the Pearl River, the Amur River, the Niger River, and the Mekong. But the Yangtze definitely pollutes the most. Here's the minister. So it's a whole, uh, it's across the board strategy. Um, also, we work very closely with business because they need to be part of the solutions through uh, extended producer responsibility. So looking at how they can help be part of the solution and being responsible for the plastics they produce. Are you part of the G7 uh, this year? I will be at the G7. Yep, there's going to be uh, there's a focus on on uh, climate and oceans, and so I've been really supporting that, helping to negotiate a zero plastic waste charter. Um, so we're we're still working hard in that, hoping hoping to land that at the G7 for the Prime Minister um, with the other minister with the other leaders. The minister attended the 2018 G7 summit the day after our phone interview. The results. A new document called the Charlevoix Blueprint for Healthy Oceans, Seas, and Resilient Coastal Communities was created. The document starts off by mentioning the same concerns we discussed on the Zero Waste Countdown in Episode 14, Sea of Life, with filmmaker Julia Barnes. Illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing and over-exploitation of fish stocks. According to Julia, 90% of all fish stocks in the ocean are gone. Livestock and household pets in North America are now eating more fish than sharks are. Marine pollution caused by plastic litter is also a concern, and the G7 leaders, well, except for two of them, have committed to finding innovative solutions. While recognizing the impact of global temperature rise on our oceans, the Charlevoix Blueprint aims to reduce emissions while at the same time stimulate innovation and economic growth. This has been important to me since day one of the Zero Waste Countdown, and I'll tell you why. I believe that people will destroy the environment for their own monetary gain. There's no better example of this than burning down the rainforest and destroying thousands of species that live in that area just to raise one or two crops for a few years before the soil is used up, just so a few people can turn a profit. But how are these people supposed to survive and feed their families and themselves if they don't have viable economic alternatives? I don't think people need to be rich, but having an economic system in place that allows people to work and provide for themselves is important. But we need better innovation and solutions. When governments recognize there's a problem with jobs that destroy the environment and make our planet worse off for everyone else, they can work on supporting ethical and sustainable companies. This is why, episode after episode, I'm so excited to talk with businesses who are finding solutions to our problems and creating even more green jobs themselves. Companies like Sustain from California, who are using all-natural dyes to get away from the 8,000 petroleum-based chemicals used in dyeing our clothing today. Companies like Fairchild from Nova Scotia, who are making children's rain gear out of recycled plastic bottles. Or Swedish Stockings from Sweden, making stockings from recycled plastic bottles too. And also tech innovators like Feedback App, who's solving the issue of restaurant food waste in Toronto by offering discounts in real time for food that would otherwise be sent to landfill. Dahlia May Flower Farm, who refuses to pack their flowers in plastic, and TerraCycle, who offers programs to recycle items not typically recycled by municipalities, including cigarettes. 
Even the fast food chain A&W Canada composts their food waste that includes their compostable food packaging, and they've committed to banning plastic straws from all their Canadian restaurants by 2019, which will prevent 82 million plastic straws from going to landfill every year. Good job, A&W. Purchasing from companies like these is basically like voting with your wallet for a better economy, better business practices, and a healthier, cleaner planet for everyone. The Charlevoix Blueprint also intends to promote coordinated action to address forced labor and other forms of work that violate or abuse human rights. Back in 2015, the CBC reported that slavery, that's right, you heard that correctly, slavery was being used on vessels in the shrimp industry, which sounds too horrible to be true, but listen to this. Brokers illegally charge laborers fees to get jobs, trap them into working on fishing vessels and at ports, mills, and seafood farms in Thailand to pay back more money than they can ever earn. You can purchase seafood from these farms in your local freezer section of a large chain grocery store. You can eat it at your favorite restaurant or find it in your canned cat food. I'm relieved that the G7 has identified these problems and made this effort to find solutions. Also, the Charlevoix Blueprint aims to encourage innovation for fishing nets, which are a major problem that create plastic marine debris and entangles wildlife that eventually breaks down into microplastic and can enter the food chain. So nets are problematic at varying levels. The annex to the blueprint is called the G7 Ocean Plastics Charter and recognizes that, and I quote here, The current approach to producing, using, managing, and disposing of plastics poses a significant threat to the environment, to livelihoods, and potentially to human health. It also represents a significant loss of value, resources, and energy. Another highlight of the blueprint aims to support secondary markets for plastics, including using policy measures and developing international incentives, standards, or requirements for product stewardship, design, and recycled content. Let's hope that means more grants and more support for businesses and startups like the ones we feature on this podcast who are leading the way in entrepreneurial sustainability. Are there lobbyists here for a plastic industry? Like, is that something the government has to, has to deal with on a federal level? Um, so, I mean, there's lots of folks who care about plastics. They might be in the plastics industry. They might be buyers of plastics. So that's everyone. We worked we work with everyone. I always say that. I work with environmentalists. I work with cities, um, but also chemicals industry. They produce the plastics, so they can. You know, we need to be working with them, looking at recyclable, biodegradable, compostable plastics, but also the buyers. So you've really seen today there was an uh, an op-ed um, by Unilever. So Unilever has Johnsons and Johnsons and other products, and they're actually saying we need to do better. We need to uh, have all recyclable, reusable, or biodegradable plastics. So that's great. Four minutes into the interview, Caroline, who works for the minister, and by the way, thank you to Caroline for all your help. She handed me a sticky saying two minutes left. So at that point, two minutes later, her team burst into action, giving the minister everything she needed for a government vote that was happening downstairs in the House of Commons, and the minister was gone in a flash. I've always admired hardworking people, so I was so impressed to see the minister and her team doing all they can to not only represent their voters and taxpayers, but also they're doing what they can for the environment and really the whole planet. So once the minister was ushered out, Caroline put me in front of the minister's scheduler, who booked a phone interview the day before the G7 began in Quebec. 
Here's the minister as she continues the important conversation about current Canadian government initiatives. So, I mean, obviously, plastics is a huge piece. Um, It's not only getting a a plastics charter internationally um, and advancing international action, but we need uh, to have a national strategy here in Canada that requires working with the provinces and territories, but also um, with cities and uh, with producers. Um, Extended producer responsibility is important in that. Um, We're working on uh, redoing how we look at it, how we do environmental assessments. So when we approve major projects, we're we're moving to what's called an impact assessment. So looking more broadly than the impact on the environment, but also the impact on health um, and Indigenous peoples and, of course, economic, uh, the economic impact. And uh, I'm very focused on climate. Uh, We have a, a national climate plan to reach our targets. Um, but we're implementing that plan. So uh, a place on pollution across the country. Um, we're working um, the phasing out of coal and our regulations in relation to that. Also, we're the first country in the world who had agreed with the U.S. Um, and I'm not sure what the U.S. is, uh, how they're doing on this front, but uh, reducing emissions, methane emissions from industry, um, a, net, a net zero vehicle strategy, addressing um emissions in the built environment in buildings and in homes, an adaptation strategy and, and a historic investments in things like public transportation, but also uh, clean technologies. So that's a top priority. Also working on uh, expanding parks and protected areas. We uh, were able to, to uh, get a historic investment of $1.3 billion in the budget, our past budget, and that includes a billion-dollar nature fund where we would partner uh, and match dollars with with philanthropists and uh, foundations uh, and also business so that we can protect more of Canada's natural areas. And related to that are species at risk. Unfortunately, we've seen an increase in species at risk, um, habitat destruction, but also climate change. And so we're working really hard uh, to protect species like caribou who uh, unfortunately are, are disappearing and we need to take measures. Um, so those are some of the top ones. Um, also, chemicals. We, we need to be doing more on toxins and chemicals. So it's a pretty busy charged agenda. Uh, you know, I have, uh, I've been here for two and a half years, um, another, you know, just over a year, uh, over a year left. So we've got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're very busy with all of that. So that's amazing to hear. Great. Yeah. I'm very excited about all of these. Uh, and it's also, you know, these files are files that matter to Canadians, but at the same time, you know, you need to be making the economic case about how there are huge economic opportunities, for example, clean technologies. So uh, I, everywhere I go, whether it's California or China, I have a trade mission with me with Canadian companies that have clean solutions. I'm also talking to Canadians about ways they can be more energy efficient and save money um, and also the value of protecting spaces, that there is a value in natural capital. Um, that sometimes we don't always think about. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, but it's a great job. I love my job. And what a great way to get Canadians out and caring about the environment than having this big budget added so that we can yeah. take care of our parks and get people out there because that, that really helps. Uh, so Ontario is implementing or trying to implement uh, a program to recover plastic bottles. So does the federal government have any way of helping out with that or is it solely on the provinces to implement those bottle return programs? Well, so we, we are working with the provinces on uh, a national strategy to tackle plastics and clearly making sure that you have a strategy to 
to the you know return plastic, single use plastics and bottles uh, is really important. Provinces are the lead, and they work very closely with municipalities. And also, industry needs to be part of this. So, as I mentioned, extended producer responsibility is an important piece. If you're producing the plastics, then you have a role in making sure that we are keeping it out of our, our you know, our garbage. Um, but we are working with every province. And I think that my focus is really on the outcome. My focus is how do we move? We're only recycling 11% of our plastics right now. How do we greatly increase this and make sure that, that all plastics are reusable or recyclable or biodegradable? And hopefully companies take a little more responsibility because right now we just put things out there and then we don't take responsibility for the garbage that our products come in. I, I think it's actually changing. So Unilever, which is a really big company, Johnson's and Johnson's, many products out there, they actually was a, there was an um, op-ed written by the head of Unilever Canada calling for producers to do just that. That extended producer responsibility is important. Um, we just saw that um, uh, IKEA is phasing out single-use plastics uh, in its operations, I think, by 2020. That's extremely ambitious. Um, And a number of companies, including U.S. companies announced, including Coca-Cola, Unilever, Pepsi, are going to uh, be making sure that all the the plastics they use are recycled, biodegradable, or compostable by 2025. So there's a, a lot of momentum. I think everyone realizes that we absolutely need to do better. We've got a major problem. But also there's that the consumers are calling for this. And that's really important because business responds like you do what's right, but you also do what's good for business. And I think that they're responding to a consumer-led demand that we do better. Absolutely. And we saw a good example of that with the microbeads. Were you in office uh, when that legislation passed, banning the microbeads? Uh, I, uh, yes. So we brought that in, microbeads, banning of microbeads. And that's actually really important because I think a lot of people don't realize that microbeads and used in cosmetics, for example, are, are getting into uh, our waters, and that is a really big problem. So uh, clearly part of the solution, and we've seen some momentum with countries around the world to take similar action. I believe the UK is, is banning straws and France has banned some single-use plastic. Uh, it seems like our government, though, is more going toward encouraging recovery more so than banning products. Is that right? Uh, well, I mean, you've seen in Canada, uh, I, I was actually just on World Environment Day with a local Ottawa brewery um, that has a restaurant, and they're banning plastic straws in their restaurant. Um, and you've seen uh, municipalities from Montreal, St. John's, Victoria, that have banned plastic bags outright, outright or charging a fee. Vancouver, Vancouver recently voted to ban uh, the distribution of plastic straws and, and styrofoam takeout containers and cups. So you are seeing action. You know, it's not always, everyone always points to the federal government. Sometimes the tools are much better at a local level where you have the, you know, the community on board and industry on board and you can be very practical because the bottom line is we don't manage municipal waste. Um, It's the cities that manage municipal waste. uh, So they're much closer to it, but we all need to come together. And that's why we're doing this national strategy. Um, and that's why we, we, I had a meeting with the provinces and territories to already start work to advance this. That's why I've had so many discussions with industry. And that's why we also are working with municipalities. Awesome. And what, what about the zero waste movement interests you personally? Do you do things in your everyday life to help the environment? Like, do you bring a, a coffee mug with you? Um, I totally do. So, I mean, it's kind of funny. I have a water bottle everywhere I go. And I actually, 
This might seem like a little thing, but I, uh, anytime I do an event, I make sure that I put it on the table in front of me because I want people to know that even ministers are doing this. Um, so to the extent I can influence some behavior, including of my counterparts, so that they see there's nothing uncool with a minister carrying a water mm-hmm. bottle or your coffee mug, I will do that. But I tried and, well, I never used straws. I, I was given a, a steel straw, so my kids have that. And my kids are actually totally on board. It's funny with young people. Like, they really care. And when they, you know, they don't always think about the problem, but when, they're, when they learn about the problem, they become pretty hardcore. So my kids, they are totally, there are no plastic straws uh, that, they, that they will use. It's not me telling them. They just won't use them. But also, um, you know, coffee cups, not taking plastic. If you have to have a paper or coffee cup, like there's, I, I am very mindful. So it is little things that we do, but it's also the big things we do. And so we need to all be pushing, um, as I said, it's not just about the federal government, it's about everyone doing their part. Um, but I, I see that I have to be a role model, and I'm much more aware of the challenge now. Now that I've been educated about it, I'm extremely concerned. Uh, it is really important. We can all do it in our daily lives, like bring your own bags when you go to the grocery store. Um, I've been known to, if I forget a bag, like basically carrying things out of my arms. <laughs> I just like, you, you don't want to do it. You just know that's one more plastic bag. And plastic bags take, they literally take decades to decompose. Yeah, absolutely. And they're everywhere and they really catch air and can really travel, which is really unfortunate. I know. And I'm actually a diver. And when I've been diving in Indonesia, like you're diving, you're literally diving with plastic bags. Oh, my goodness. And that's, you know, that's, that's gross. But imagine that you're a marine mammal and you see it and you think it's like a jellyfish or something and you eat it, right? That's the problem. Now we're opening up fish, we're opening up birds and seeing all this plastic. They are literally choking uh, on the plastics. And in many cases, we're eating the plastics because we have microplastics that are going through the food chain. So when we're eating fish, uh, we're eating it. And our scientists are now doing research to understand, okay, what is the impact on human health through this? Is BPA banned in Canada or was that just in the UK? Because I know there was a movement to get BPA out of baby bottles a while yes, ago. That was, that was also something that happened in Canada. Um, and that's what we need to be, you know, we need to be thinking about, you know, what are we using and what chemicals are we ingesting? And obviously with plastics, there's a lot more work to be done. And I think people don't think about it as much. They think about the plastic straw in the, tur- in the turtle's nose, um, but they don't think about the plastics that are eaten by fish, in particular microplastics, um, and then we're eating those fish, so we're eating those plastics. So I think we also need to understand that a lot more too. Absolutely. Uh, so I just wanted to ask another question about you because I saw a video a while ago and you were talking on a boat and I can't find it, the video again, but you just jumped into the ocean and started swimming. <laughs> so I am a swimmer and I've been known to do things that my team <laughs> think are highly unusual. Um, that was a, that was actually a really special moment. It was in Victoria uh, in, um, in September. So it was chilly, let's say. I don't know how many degrees, but it wasn't a lot of degrees of water. Um, I was part of this. I was on the sea three ship. So this was a ship to celebrate Canada 150 that made a journey um, from coast to coast to coast. And this was at the very end. And I arrived uh, and everyone was out in kayaks. And I said, well, I don't know how far they are. They're about a kilometer out. So I said, well, I'm just going to go swim. Um, so that really surprised people. But it was, uh, it was amazing. And I, I actually always try to connect with nature. When I'm out, my preference is to swim. That's my number one thing. I'm a competitive swimmer. I 
swam for decades as a kid, and uh, I still actually am known to compete sometimes when I can get some training in as a master swimmer. Not because I care about my times, but it means that I actually am a little more diligent in getting in the pool and training. But whether it's swimming uh, or diving or canoeing or kayaking, I just, one, I love it. And that's the beauty of my job, that I have the opportunity to connect with nature, to really show to people, like, what are we talking about? But it's also a way to, to really, you know, remember why I'm doing this job myself. Well, that really caught my eye. I'm a former athlete myself. And so to see you as this woman who's leading her country to help the environment and protect the, the climate, it was really inspiring for me to see that, that you're a leader and an athlete. Um, and all these wonderful things. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I don't know if you're a swimmer, but maybe we can go jump in somewhere and go solo swim. The minister invited me to go swimming. Well, I know how cold it is in Victoria. It's it's freezing if you're internationally listening listening right now. So just to jump in the Canadian Ocean is is no small task. So if you can find the video of Catherine McKenna uh, jumping in the ocean, it's it's pretty cool. And she doesn't look cold at all. But I promise you that it it's quite cold out there. I, I was actually put my head down and kind of swam pretty hard at the beginning, um, and then I got out and I was. Not hypothermic, but that was pretty cool. Um, anyway, but it was it, uh, it was really awesome. It was on the C three ship, so you can actually find it if you Google C three Catherine McKenna swimming, maybe or so. <laughs> you might most people will probably laugh at me, but you know what? You got to also just do things that are are, are fun and uh, that highlights what we're trying to do. Awesome, and in in the greatest environment that we have, Canada is so beautiful. So I'm so glad we that we are very lucky. We do live in the best country in the world. Apologies for everyone else that listens from other countries, but I'm sorry. Canada is the most beautiful country. We have the largest coastline. We have three oceans. Uh, we have so many lakes and rivers. Uh, we're very fortunate, but we got to protect them. Absolutely. Well, I feel confident with you leading the way. So uh, thank you for that, and uh, I hope to. Cross paths one day and best of luck in your next ventures. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. This week on my Countdown to Zero Waste, I took the train instead of driving three hours to Ottawa. As usual, when I travel by air or rail, I brought my own zero waste snacks, a water bottle, mug, and spoon with me so I don't have to produce any trash. While in Ottawa, I chose to sit down at restaurants so I didn't have to take any to-go packaging, making my trip zero waste. If you like our show, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Zero Waste Countdown. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, you can email me, laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.